Guys, I, I almost messed that up. That was, <laughs> uh, hey, those skits were pretty awesome, right? Yeah, we're, we're all in agreement there. Hey, I, uh, guys, I was pretty nervous today because I thought I lost my flute, uh, but I found it, so I'm pretty pumped on that. Wow, I ruined it. I keep ruining it. I'm sorry. Well, hey, as usual, are you guys down to look at that skit, but in the Bible with real people? Can we do it? If you're down, say, yay, yay. All right. Well, hey, on our last night, it's worth reminding you of just bringing the progression up to speed, okay? It's pretty sweet because by the end of today, you'll have a pretty good grasp of the entire book of John, just about. We started looking at the truth of God, just establishing that he's not only true, but that he is the source of truth. Remember, it doesn't come from people. We don't get to choose and make and believe hard enough our own. God is the source of truth. And as a good God, he gave us his word. We saw that on our second time together. And his word is trustworthy and true, which we established is so important when we live in a world of lies that harm and confuse and frustrate us. And they're not just out there, they're in us. And God gives us the truth of his word to combat all of those lies that we encounter and will continue to encounter. And we looked, up the tr- we looked at the truth of Jesus' life and teaching and that he's good and that we're lucky to even have access to him. But then we saw we don't have access to him when we realize the truth of our sin, that it, that it grows, that it overrides, that it overpowers us and there is nothing we can do when it separates us and disqualifies us from our relationship with God. And last night, we saw the truth of Jesus' death and resurrection, his response to our sin problem. And some of you guys, for the very first time, experienced the freedom of the truth of Jesus' death and resurrection because you allowed your death to be put to sin and you went from death to life. And guys, if it's not obvious, I hope you know that we are so pumped for you and I'm excited that you're going back home with a Christian school, with people who are going to love you well. And guys, I need to tell the rest of you, if you know somebody who accepted Jesus or had a significant moment last night, you have a responsibility to them, to love them well, to pray for them, to encourage them, to be with them as a good brother or sister in the Lord. Everybody raise your right hand. Everybody say, I'm going to do that thing that TJ just said. Amen. Okay, it's a verbal contract. That's it. You have to do it now, okay? And so tonight, that brings us now to the truth of the life of the believer, which is basically, in light of all of these things, what now? When you pack your bags, when you go back home, so what? What do we do about all this? And so in order to do that, I need to take us back to the book of John to wrap up our story. So if you would, please turn with me to John chapter 20. And when you get there, please say, yeah, yeah. Are you guys really there? Okay. You know what? You've been so great, I'm just going to trust you. (laughs) Here's what it says. Actually, think about this. The disciples right now are at a different place of understanding than you and I are. We know the whole story. We know how it resolves. We're not living in the tension anymore. But for the disciples, think about this. The last thing they saw with their own eyes was Jesus being flogged, which was excruciating. Jesus on the cross, dead, and that's it. They are terrified. They're drowning in uncertainty. They don't know what's going to happen next. That's the position they're in when we pick up our story. So in in 20 verse 1, it says this. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene, do you remember this lady? 
Remember, we looked archaeologically. We saw the tile floor of that old ancient church where they were trying to build a gas station. And Mary Magdalene, she's really from this. a real lady in real history. This is crazy. Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple. Who's the other disciple? It's John. John, the writer of this book, whenever he refers to himself in his own book, it's either the disciple that Jesus loved or the other disciple, okay? The other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and she said, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. And here's another thing we need to just put ourselves in their shoes, because I think when you and I hear, the stone is rolled away, for us we go, hooray, that's not where Mary is, right? Because for you and I we go, the stone is rolled away, it's Easter, I'm wearing my pastel Easter clothes, and there's probably an Easter basket with weird eggs for some reason on my bed, you know what I mean? But this is not a moment of fun joy for her. For her, think about the progression. She loves Jesus. She follows him, listens to his teaching. He's arrested. This is terrible. He's flogged. Oh, my goodness, I can't believe this has happened. He's crucified. He's dead. And now she thinks her brain's just spinning. There's been grave robbers. That's why the tombstone is, that's why the stone is rolled away. What are the grave robbers going to do? There's probably people who hate Jesus. Once they get his dead body, are they going to desecrate it? Are they going to put it in some public place and mock him? Like, this is an emotional roller coaster for her. She is overwhelmed, right? And then I want you to see where John is (laughs) because he's a doofus, okay? Verse 3. Just listen to this. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running. But the other disciple, me, outran Peter and reached the tomb first because I am a superior athlete. Am I adding words to the Bible? Is this heresy? No, okay, I'm not adding anything. Just these are my added commentaries, okay? I don't want a lightning bolt to hit me. He bent over and and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter, who was behind him, this is a TJ quote, because he's so slow, arrived and went into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the burial cloth that had been around Jesus' head. The cloth was folded up by itself, separate from the linen. And finally, the other disciple who, in case you forgot, reached the tomb first, also went inside. God, think about John right now. This guy gets to do the most amazing thing that's ever happened. He's not just writing Bible. He is writing the most important part of the Bible. He is writing the documentation of Jesus' resurrection. And he has a, a crying, grieving woman next to him. And the only thing that he can think about is not the sensitivity of the lady or the importance of his task. The thing that he mentions four times is, you guys want to see how fast I can run? Hey, do you realize, like, Peter, like, he tried, he ran pretty fast, but every time, like, I was faster, (laughs) I got there first. I'm just saying, if this guy, if God can use this guy to write Bible, if he gets to be one of the 12 disciples, guys, God can use me and you to change the stinking world, okay? And that's not just a joke I'm giving you. That's, That's real. If he qualifies, then what can God do with us, okay? You guys with your Christian schools, you're remembering all your nerd verses, and you're just so smart, like, and he's worrying about how fast he can run. Guys, good things are in store. Okay? All right. That brings us now to verse 10. And I just want to paraphrase this part. Ultimately, John and Peter go back to their homes, which leaves Mary there at the tomb, still overwhelmed, still completely upset, weeping. And while she's there, just like we saw in the skit, Jesus appears. Remember, he's died. He's resurrected. Jesus in that state appears 
to her. And she's, she's so unsettled and disoriented, she doesn't realize that it's him at first. And when she does, she freaks out. She's overjoyed. She's like, oh my goodness, Jesus, you're here. And Jesus essentially goes to her and goes, yep, I am. And listen, we don't have a lot of time right now. I want you to go tell the other disciples that I've risen. They need to know so that they're not just continuing to live in fear, right? That's kind of the gist of what has happened. And so in verse 18, it says, Mary goes to the disciples and she tells them, I have seen the Lord. But what we read next leads me to believe that they did not believe her, okay? Because if they have been told and believed, Jesus has risen from the grave. He's proven he is who he says he is. Like, we weren't just following a man. God is on our side. We're going to be okay, Think about how they would be acting if they believed that and compare that to what we read here. In verse 19, it says, On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them. Picture this, okay? Mary has told them they don't believe her. They all huddle together in the middle of a room with every door locked, every shade pulled, the lights off, shivering like little chihuahuas again. That's not the posture that someone takes if they believe that God is on your side, you know? And that little thing at the end, it says, and Jesus came and stood among them. I don't have anything in my Bible that says he knocked on the door or someone let him in. I'm led to believe that this is like a supernatural, like he just materializes inside the room, like, bing! And they're like, oh, Jesus, it's you! And it says that they're overjoyed. He says, peace be with you. After this, he, he said, after he said this, he showed them his hands and his side, and the disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Guys, I, I can't even imagine this scene. Like, think about what it would be like if you were one of the 12 disciples. Jesus just, here I am, everything's okay. What? And then, beyond that, he goes to show you, remember what happened to me? And, like, one of the disciples was probably like, I can see through your, this is crazy. I didn't get to tell you this, but... When Jesus died on the cross, the, the Roman soldiers did something that they do to every person that they execute via crucifixion. And that was they would take a sword and stab it up underneath their ribcage and pierce their heart so that they could know 100% with certainty that the person that they had crucified was dead. They did that to Jesus. He was 100% dead. And now he's showing them the gash going, and now I'm alive. Like they would have just jaw dropped amazement, been completely beside themselves. The bigger point for you and I, though, is I want you to realize what Jesus is doing right now. He has a room full of his followers who are cowering in fear, completely uncertain about what's going to happen to them. They're stressed, they're nervous, they're probably anxious. And this is what Jesus does in response. He reminds them of all the things they already know. He had told them before he died, guys, I'm going to die. I'm going to rise again. It's going to be through me that you have forgiveness of sin. You have a relationship with God. Even the reminders we've seen, right? I'm the spring of living water. I'm the good shepherd. They already know everything. He's just reminding them what they need to be reminded of. And guys, this might sound boring to you right now, but that's important. See, I think there's a thing among Christians today where the things that we value the most are the fresh ideas, the new sounding ideas, the thing that feels like a mind bomb or a big aha. But what Jesus is saying you need as a Christian when life gets hard, when you are afraid, when you have uncertainty, is to be reminded of the things that you already know to be true in the Bible. And this isn't just Jesus doing this lovingly with the disciples here. 
This is all over the Old Testament. God tells the Israelites in the Old Testament, hey, you need to write the Bible verses that are a big deal. Write them on your doorways. Memorize them. Tell them to your kids. Meditate on them so that when hardship comes your way, what will come out of you for your benefit is the word of God that will remind you of the peace that you have, remind you that your hope is secure, your eternity is set, you're going to be okay even if this life gets hard. And guys, I know who I'm talking to. I know that you are kids who attend a private Christian school. You probably, I don't know, maybe you have a great home life, maybe you have great teachers. You, you probably don't relate to the things I'm saying to you right now, but I hope that you will log these away because I guarantee you, I guarantee you, at some point you will encounter difficulty. You will be afraid in your life. You will have hard circumstance that causes stress and anxiety. Jesus promises us you will have trouble. And what you need is what the disciples needed in their trouble. Hiding God's word in your heart. Guys, when you hide God's word in your heart, it effectively kills sin, it restores your spirit, and it brings peace back into your soul. And you might hear me right now flatly just saying, memorize the Bible. Yep, that's exactly what I'm saying. Great, let's move on. <clears throat> All right, here's where we are. Uh, verse 21. Again, Jesus said to them, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. Guys, I'll be real honest. That verse is weird to me. I don't understand it. I don't have some Bible commentary that makes this make sense. And then my weird brain goes on top of that and just pictures all the disciples at Jesus' feet. And he goes, ah. Or like, oh, yeah, I don't, I, don't, I don't understand the methodology, but I believe in Jesus. I trust that this happened. And somehow he has given them the Holy Spirit. Okay? So what you need to catch is that he has sent them and us, and he has given them and us the Holy Spirit. And this next verse messed me up as a kid. Here's what it says. Verse 23. If you forgive anyone his sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Guys, I, I remember being in elementary school thinking this verse gave me like some weird power where it was like if someone's being mean to me, I could go, I do not forgive you. And then like they're going to hell. You know what I mean? That, that is not what this verse means though, Okay. Think about this in the context of him sending us and giving us the Holy Spirit. What it means is he's saying, everything that I endured on the cross to give you forgiveness, there are other people who don't have that forgiveness yet. And I, Jesus, am going away. And if you don't tell them, how will they get forgiveness? How will they know of my love and my grace? How will they get the relief of their sin and their shame and their punishment and their separation from God off of their shoulders unless it comes from you. I send you and I give you my Holy Spirit. And there's an urgency to it because you guys, every single one of us have a family member or a friend or someone that we love dearly, that Jesus loves more, that needs the forgiveness that you and I have experienced, the love and the lordship of Jesus. And they don't have it yet. God's response to them is us. And you might hear that and go, okay, I'm sent, uh, cool, vague idea, let's go home. Wrong, okay? Because this is what a lot of us Christians do. We go, uh, I didn't really hear that last thing you said about being sent. I think how it actually works is Jesus died on the cross because he loves me so much, and now I am forgiven, 
and invited to eat Cheetos to the glory of God. Like, that's it. I'm just going to cruise, baby. Like, like, we're like, thanks so much, Jesus, K-I-T. Like, we're signing his yearbook, you know. I'll see you in 70 years when I die, bro. <laughs> no! God's not waiting till heaven. We're not just sitting in this, like, time capsule frozen, like just waiting to wake up and go to heaven. God's got awesome stuff he wants to do now. God's got awesome people he wants to save with his love now. God's got people who are going to die and be separated from him that he really wants to change that now. And even in processing that, if we're honest, some of us hear that and we go, fantastic. I knew there was a catch. What you're saying is Jesus did all this stuff for me. He loves me. And now I have to be perfect. I have to be Jesus-y. I have to do all the religious-y rigmarole and be just right. And I would tell you, no. Actually, Jesus did all the perfection that needed was needed on the cross. He did all the perfection for us. It's accomplished. Now, in God's grace, what he calls us to is we're no longer judged by perfection. Now he calls us to obedience. And this is one of those moments where God accurately meets us in the condition we are. Because I can't do perfection, you guys, but I can do obedience. And here's the amazing thing about obedience. When I'm having a great day, when, when I'm kind-hearted and I have compassion for someone else and I've read my Bible and I'm pumped and I'm obeying Jesus, that's a good day and I'm, I've been obedient. But think about this. On my worst days, when I'm tempted and I give in and I fall back into that sin and now I feel dirty and shameful and terrible, this is what's great about obedience in contrast to perfection. In that sinful moment, I can immediately turn it back into obedience. I can immediately catch myself and go, God, this isn't who I want to be. This isn't what I want to do. And you can turn it around. You can, you can repent, right? When sometimes that's confession, like that moment I shared about myself the other day. Sometimes that's you're just going to hop in your Bible or, or put something in place where you don't go there anymore. But the great thing about obedience is that when you're doing good, it's possible. In your failure, it's possible. Jesus doesn't send us and call us to perfection. But some of you maybe feel like I felt in junior high. I remember hearing that Jesus saved me and then sent me as a junior high, junior higher, and going, I guess if I really value what Jesus did for me, now I am obligated to be a Jesus salesman. You know, like go door to door and like knock like, hello, sir, can I tell you about my Lord and Savior? And have the door slammed on me and just be a little kid just sad walking through the neighborhood like, <laughs> Tell me that doesn't sound terrifying and bad. Yes, it does, right? Can we agree? Yes? Yeah. yeah. Well, the good thing is I would don't think that's exactly what God calls us to. Everybody go, phew, phew. What God calls us to is something so much better, and I'm incredibly excited to share it with you. It's not an obligation. You are not now a salesman for Jesus. It's not something you have to do to reach a quota, to perform for him in order to go to heaven. The saving was already done on the cross. Now he just invites us to respond in the best way that is the most fulfilling and satisfying for our life. But here's the paradox of it. The Bible says that Jesus sends us to do something. But the Bible also tells us because of all the sin that taints us, we are incapable of doing anything good. So he's like, hey, go do this thing that you can't do. What? What is this, a trap? What are you setting me up to fail? Why would you do that? And that's not the case at all. Because he gives us a secret ingredient. He gives us the Holy Spirit. And I want you to understand how excited Jesus himself was about us having the Holy Spirit. This is uh, one, of those verse, one of those chapters that we skipped John 16, 7 says this. This is Jesus talking about the Holy Spirit. Just listen to this. He says, but I tell you the truth. 
it is for your good that I'm going away. Unless I go away, the counselor will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. What Jesus is saying is that if he could pick for you, between you having Jesus himself with you, where you could walk with him, you could talk with him, maybe he could transport you in a time machine to be alive back then, or you could have the Holy Spirit, he thinks you having the Holy Spirit is exponentially better. Because if you were walking with Jesus, you'd have to stand in line because there's 5,000 people that want bread. You know what I mean? If you're walking with Jesus, when he gets sleepy and needs to take a nap, you can't talk to him. But the Holy Spirit, the gift of God, him indwelling in you, you have now have access to God whenever you want. And you and I hear that, and we know it, and we take it for granted, and we go, whoa, whoa, whoa. But that should be amazing to you. Jesus was so excited that you would have access to God in the form of the Holy Spirit. Let's nerd out a little bit, okay? We're going to risk feeling a little bit like one of your classrooms. Here we go. This is what Galatians 5.22 says about the Holy Spirit. You know what? If you know this, say it with me, okay? But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Guys, well done. Everybody, everybody pat your neighbor's shoulder. Great job. Great job. Here's why that matters in our conversation. These are fruits of the Spirit. These are things that the Holy Spirit, through the Holy Spirit, God gives to you. He does the doing. He accomplishes. And he gives. Elsewhere in the Bible, we're told that what the Holy Spirit does for us is he reminds us. He teaches us. He convicts us, which basically means he makes it easier for us to see the difference between right and wrong we're in that, when we're in that temptation moment and have to choose. He prays on our behalf. The Holy Spirit illuminates and clarifies the Bible when we're reading it. He makes it more capable of us understanding the things that God wants us to see. He does all of those things for us. Philippians 2.13 goes further and it says, For it is God who works in us to will and to act according to his good purpose. Think about everything that I've just said in relation to us being sent. He sends us. And he gives us the Holy Spirit who essentially does all the doing. If you combine those verses, it means God gives us the motivation. He gives us the opportunity to do good. He gives us the will to do good. He gives us the peace, the joy, the, all of these things. Now, what I'm not saying is that, therefore, we just cruise and take a nap in the church. You know what I'm saying? Jesus says it better than I do. I want to show you the way that he puts this into perspective. This is John 15, and I'm going to start in verse 5. He gives another one of his mind-blowing analogies, okay? In verse 5, he says, I am the vine. You are the branches. If a man remains in me, he will say that word remain 11 times in this passage. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not remain in me, he is like a branch that is thrown away and withers. I stinking love this analogy, okay? Picture this. Jesus is saying, I'm a vine. Have you ever seen a grapevine? Yeah. It's this weird, gnarled, funky, prickly, bark, twisted thing that just kind of sticks out of the ground, right? And that thing, with its roots, sucks all the nutrients out of the ground, right? And then it has these teeny, tiny, insignificant, nothing branches. And the vine sucks up the nutrients and pushes them into the branches. And what he's saying is, I'm the vine. I supply all the branches. You are my baby little branch, okay? And branch, listen up. Listen up, little branch. I want you to produce fruit. Now, if we were going to do this wrong, we would be 
pumped at Hume, have a fire in our heart. We would go, sweet, I got it. I'm the branch, produce fruit, woo. And you'd go home and be like, I'm going to produce fruit. I'm going to try really hard to produce fruit. I'm going to do my best to produce fruit. And you know what's going to happen, you cute little branch? You're going to go home, and because you didn't remain, you're going to wither and die. And you're not going to produce any fruit because on your own, what does Jesus say? You can do nothing apart from me. Anything good that you love Jesus and you want to go do, you can't because you're still a dirtbag sinner. Yeah, I just called a room full of junior hires dirtbags. That was on my bucket list, just so you know. (laughs) I am too. I am too. But think about this, you guys. This is how God overrides our sin nature, how he accomplishes good things through us. That little branch, if it were self-aware and it jumped off the vine, it would be so dumb. In the same way, you and I, when we're sent, what we're called to do is remain, stay, stay close, stay here, stay. That doesn't mean sit down. That doesn't mean go to sleep. That doesn't mean passively do nothing. That means stay here. To say it simply, it means you cannot afford to miss an opportunity to interact with the Holy Spirit. Every opportunity to interact with the Holy Spirit is staying close to him. It is remaining, right? This is why we, all of us old people with you, this is why we prattle off those things like, guys, make sure you read your Bible. Make sure you go to church. Make sure you pay attention when your Bible teacher's talking, when your youth pastor's giving a sermon. Make sure when you're in youth group, if you guys do small groups, that you're actually being open and you're processing where the Bible intersects with your life. That's not because there's a bunch of rules and check boxes that you have to do as a Christian. It's because every time you open up that Bible by yourself, the Holy Spirit in you wants to illuminate it. It's because every time the Bible is read aloud by someone else and they teach out of it, the Holy Spirit in you stirs and does something. It's because every time you interact with another believer, when you're in your small group and another kid who is also a Christian is sharing something about their life or that they learned, have you ever experienced this when you're like, oh my goodness, they don't even know what's going on in my life, but I needed to hear that. Have you experienced that? This is what we're talking about, guys. You can't afford to miss an opportunity to interact with the Holy Spirit. So we don't go to these things because the game is fun or the teacher's engaging or I like this crew or we all share the same interests. We go because Jesus says remain and this is how we produce fruit and we honor and obey him when we are sent and we are the way that people will experience forgiveness through us, okay? And I want you to think about something. I don't think you, in, in history, when you think about different generations of people your age who are now old and wrinkly and dead, right? You guys as a generation, and you guys specifically in this room, I don't think you understand how severely lucky you are. The fact that you go to a Christian school, that you can go to church, that you have access to a youth group, a youth pastor, counselors, parents, teachers, whatever. There were a bajillion generations that didn't have any of that stuff. The, the ability for them to remain would have been exponentially harder. Like, I want you to, and I think you take this for granted. Can we just say that? I want you to imagine if church didn't exist, your Christian school didn't exist, youth group didn't exist, Hume Lake didn't exist, and you read the words of Jesus, you're still a Christian, and now you are tasked with, all right, boys and girls, go remain. Maybe, you, maybe you're an optimist and you're like, all right, I can figure this out. I'm going to go get me a couple mentors and they're going to help me and I'm going to do this and I'm like, you know what, I'm going to be fine. Where do I find a good grown-up mentor? I know. 
grown-ups work in cubicles. I'm going to go find a building with cubicles. So you see one, you walk in the double doors, you go, ha, there's the cubicles. And then out of the corner of your eye, you see a water cooler. And what you know about the culture of adults is that adults usually congregate near the water cooler. So you go over there, and you're like, easy peasy. I'm just going to wait here until a couple good ones come over. I want to ask them to be my mentors, and I'm fine. TJ, you don't know what you're talking about. One comes over, and he looks like a serial killer, and you're like, not that one. And then the next one comes over, and you're like, oh, they have kind eyes. I'm going to ask them, excuse me, grown up, um, listen, I just, I need a mentor. And so what that entails, if, if you would be down, is like, every week I'm going to need hours of your time. I'm going to need to be able to tell you my biggest regrets. I'm going to need you to see the worst parts of who I am and still love me. And then I'm going to need you to give you, me some life advice. I'm going to need you to put up with me when I'm a jerk to a grown-up. I'm, I'm going to need you to love me through being flaky and all these things. What do you say? And then that grown-up pull their pack of cigarettes out of their front pocket, pull one out and go, get out of here, kid, because you forgot to even ask them if they're a Christian. Do you know what I'm saying? I'm, I'm being sarcastic, but you cannot replicate the incredibly unique and special thing that you have access to in your Christian schools, in your churches, in your youth group. Don't you dare take those for granted because you cannot afford to miss an opportunity to interact with the Holy Spirit. Do you understand what I'm saying? Oh, no, you guys are so sleep. Am I being mean right now? Is that what's happening? Oh, guys, I'm sorry. All right, I'll lighten up. Here we go. Picture, please. If none of this is making sense, this is the best I got. Okay, after this, I don't know what we have. I was a wimp my whole life, okay? And at one point, this old man with a huge mustache that looked like a walrus named Captain Ron said, Hey, TJ, want to come spearfishing with me? And I went, Woohoo! Yeah, I do. What spearfishing? And so he explained it to me, and he basically said, we're going to go get in the river in town, and we're going to have spears and wetsuits and flippers and goggles, and we're just going to float. And when we see a fish, we're going to explode it. And I went, that sounds incredible. And for those of you who are like, oh, the fish. Listen, these were an invasive species. They were sucking up all the endangered salmon eggs in their gravel beds, and Fish and Game said, kill as many as you can. So we said, all right, we're doing the Lord's work, you know what I mean? So... I get in the truck with Captain Ron, and we're driving, and I start realizing I know this river. I'm scared to death of this river. It has huge boulders that cause rapids where they suck you under and like have a whirlpool eddy thing, right? It has huge fallen trees hanging in it with branches that look like witch fingers that are just going to scratch my eyes out, pull me down, and cause me to drown. And I start going, I don't have any gear. I don't know what I'm doing. I'm not even brave enough to do And I start telling Captain Ron all, all of my fears of why this isn't going to work. And one by one, he methodically resolves them. He goes, listen, I have all the gear you need in your size. I know every inch of that river, we're going to be safe. All you're going to have to do is hold on to my flipper, TJ, and I will do the rest. So we got in the water, I held on to his flipper, and it was awesome. He would point at a fish and be like, and then I would try to shoot it and I would miss. I did it like six, seven, a hundred times, you know, and ultimately I got one and I was like, and it was incredible. The reason I tell you that story because it's the best thing I have to illustrate this concept that Jesus is saying. Why did Captain Ron invite me to go spearfishing with him? Was it because he needed my performance? Because he had a quota of fish to catch, and he wanted me to up his numbers, and if I didn't, I'm going to fail. No. He invited me because he enjoyed our friendship, and he just wanted me to come do his favorite thing with him. Because you are not asked by Jesus to be a salesman for Jesus. Jesus' favorite thing 
is changing people's eternities, is saving them and giving them hope when they had no hope. And he desperately loves you. And so he looks at you and he says, I'm inviting you to come do my favorite thing, the most fulfilling, satisfying thing I have ever applied myself to is getting to humbly be involved in what Jesus is doing and saving another person. It's the best. This isn't an obligation. It's the best. I want to read you this verse. This is 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9. And it's incredible, just so you know. Here we go. Here's what it says. <clears throat> My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that in Christ's power, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. His power is made perfect in my Weakness. Guys, with Captain Ron, I brought fear, <laughs> incompetence, and more fear, and he brought everything necessary to make that happen. With Jesus, you and I bring sin, inadequacy, and that's about it. And Jesus brings all the strength and all the ability to accomplish everything that is necessary. We have to show up and be willing to actively hold on to his flipper and say, yes, you sent me and you've given me the Holy Spirit. What do you want to accomplish? Look at this. Second picture, please. Hub up. This is a bowl, okay? This is an ancient Japanese art form called kintsugi, all right? And what these artists would do is they would take a piece of trash, a broken piece of pottery like a bowl, and when broken, it couldn't do anything. It couldn't hold water. It couldn't perform a function. It was absolute garbage. But what that artist would do is melt a precious metal like gold and meticulously and carefully put this thing back together so that now... Its weak points, the things that ruined it, are the most beautiful, strong piece of the whole thing. That's what God does. When he invites us, when he sends us, when he gives us the Holy Spirit, he's growing us and making us beautiful. He's saving the people around us. It's, it's the best. I know I'm being redundant now, but I'm, I'm, I'm going to close with this, okay? Who cares about a bajillion analogies I could give you? There's an eighth grader at my church named Leah. Leah was attending youth group, good kid, but that's about it. And she started being intentional in her relationship with Jesus and asking God prayerfully, God, who is it that you just want me to love or pay attention to? And at what point, it was weird to her, but she felt like he had put her friend Justice on her heart. So at school, she went up to Justice and she just said, hey, Justice, my church is doing this awesome all-nighter thing. I just wanted to invite you. And to her surprise, Justice goes, yeah, I'd love to come. Justice isn't a Christian. Justice family doesn't know Jesus. They've never gone to church. That's it. But Justice was invited by Leah, and she comes to this all-nighter. She meets some other friends at youth group. She ends up coming to youth group, and slowly she ends up with questions. And Leah is like, I don't know the answer to that question. She's not pretending. She doesn't have to be perfect or the answer lady, but she goes, I'll Google it. I'll ask my youth pastor. And through weeks and months like that, Justice is growing in understanding of Jesus. And eventually our church's winter camp comes and Justice accepts Jesus. And she doesn't just accept Jesus. From that point on, she realizes, I don't want to just live this private relationship with Jesus. This isn't a part of my life. He is my whole life. And baptism is a way that I can display that. Justice goes, I want to get baptized. All right, Justice, who do you want to baptize you? I want Leah to baptize me. 
And so I got to watch an eighth grader get in the baptismal with her friend that she did all the stuff we're talking about. And with joy and peace in her heart, she just said, this is my friend Justice, and she loves Jesus. And she baptized her. Leah got to be a part of the eternal change that happened in Justice's life. And if you ask Leah, was that an obligation? Was that a sales pitch? Was that stuff you had to do for Jesus? She would say, no. It was the best thing that I have ever got to do in my entire life. That is what Jesus invites you to. And guys, it's not just kid to kid. I've had, in the last five months, I have had adults show up to my church, married couples, and I've asked them, hey, I haven't seen you guys before. What brought you here? And this, this dad in overalls with a huge mustache goes, our son made us come. And I went, oh my gosh. And guys, five months later, with those parents attending church, that dad heard the gospel, and I just saw a connection card with a little box checked said he accepted Jesus. You have no idea what God can accomplish through you. Because it's not about you. It's not about you being good enough or strong enough or cool enough or any of those things. His power is made great in our weakness. We just have to show up, grab his flipper, and say, yes, I know you sent me. I'm in. And guys, here's the thing. I don't, I don't want to just inspire you. I want to be real. Statistically, I was a youth pastor for 10 years. Most of you, 80% of you, senior year, you're gone. You're not in the church anymore. I pray that is not you. But when we apply that to this camp, what it means is most of you will go home, and the next few days, you will forget everything that we've talked about. Your life will busy itself up again. You're going to throw a screen back in front of your face. You're going to be distracted and care about everything that the world cares about. You, you might go back to being that Christian school stereotype again where you're judging the kids who are less popular, where you're making fun of the kids whose parents don't make as much as your parents do, and all of the sin that you had been bloated with and ruined by when you came up here that you needed safety and rescue from, you're going to let build up in your life again for the next 11 and a half months. And 11 and a half months from now, you know what you're going to need? You're going to need another camp in order to be convicted and have Jesus make you cry, and then you're going to go right back into that cycle. And guys, I would be a jerk to you if I didn't tell you that is never what God intended for your life to be. I hope you don't comfortably go back to that cycle. And guys, some of you, a very small number of you, will take the words that we have read this week to heart. You will take every opportunity to interact with the Holy Spirit. And when you're tired, when your schedule starts to fill up, you're still going to prioritize opening that Bible, making it to your church. And as a result, what's going to happen is God is going to grow you. He's going to make you stronger against your sin, and you're going to experience victories against sin that you hadn't been experiencing before. He's going to use you to be a blessing to the people around you. And if you keep that up, what's going to happen is a few years from now, you're going to be the counselor sitting in these seats. You're going to be the Hume staff being a part of the gospel. You're going to be the speakers and the Bible teachers at your church who are changing the world, and you don't wait for that. You start now. You be a Leah now. Guys, I pray that you're that one and not the first one. Let me pray for you now. God, we love you. We thank you for this week together. I thank you selfishly for the time that I've just got to enjoy these students, these adults. God, thank you for what you're doing in these schools. And I pray for every single one of these students that as they go back home, that you would give them everything that they need to retain sensitive hearts to you. 
God, would you protect their consciences? Would you embolden them to choose what's right? Would you help them to push off temptation and peer pressure and going back to the things that so easily tempted them, God? Would you get glory when they get victory over sin? God, would you help them to be brave in the way that they love other people? Would you allow them to experience what it's like to be a part of a person's life they love being changed for eternity? Thank you that you give us the incredible privilege to be a part of the way that you are saving people's lives around us. We love you, Jesus, and we acknowledge that you're good. And in Christ's name we pray. And everybody said? Amen. Amen.